Great. Well, so excited to welcome Todd Haskell, Chief Marketing Officer of Hearst Magazines, to the CMO Series video podcast today. Todd, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Very, very excited to dig in. So I'm going to kick off with a nice softball for you. Um, So you sit across an organization as CMO that is catering to car fanatics, health and wellness lovers, beauty lovers, people who are obsessed with their homes. I mean, so much must have changed in the past year for you and for your readers and for, for your team. How do you as CMO stay in touch with what's most important and happening in culture? Yeah, you know, that's a really interesting question. So, and, and I think it's something that we're sort of obsessed with um, because across the organization, you know, understanding what is going on with our consumers, with the readers is is just central to everything that we do. Um, so, you know, thankfully, the, the, as an organization, we have um, put a lot of effort into giving people, giving the entire organization access to what we learn about consumers. So, you know, for example, you know, I mean, we're touching, you know, whatever, a couple hundred million consumers a month just in the U.S. Um, And so we see an enormous amount in terms of reader behavior, commerce activity, um, what people are gravitating to, how they're gravitating to that content. Um, So what we've done a lot of is is making that those insights available to as many people as we can on the team making it available to our editorial colleagues to inform creative decision making making that available to our sales and marketing teams so they can come up with ideas for our advertising clients that will perform really well um so like literally i mean i can't tell you how many different dashboards and tools and things of this sort that that i look at but I think you know the, the the main thing that that probably encapsulates it is this idea of of, of democratizing data, um, and making data accessible and easy for people with really different sort of mindsets to access. Because you know, if I think about it, a few years ago, like you know, you used to call up a data analyst, you know, if you had a question and you were interested right. in what a piece readers of were paper thinking under the door and hope that something comes out, right? It was kind of magical, yeah. Exactly. And what we just learned was that if if you don't make it super easy for people to get access to data in real time and be able to in, have that inform their decisions the people just won't use it. Um, so we've made a lot of investments in tools and AI and machine learning so that all of our people have access in w- that they can do themselves, um, which we think has just dramatically changed how people inform um, their own decision-making on a, day- on a day-to-day basis. So, so I look at that kind of stuff all the time. I also, I just read our content all the time, um, which I think is also just really, really important for what it is that we do. Right. And I mean, you're always getting this real-time feedback from your readers about what they care about. So integrating that. I mean, one thing that um, I think you said in a, in a past conversation we've had together is you, you said it really eloquently to data is most powerful when it is most available. But right. what you just said actually went a little further than that, um, because you're not only making data available, you're sort of making it so that people can use it themselves as opposed to just get access to it. What was that process like? And was that something that 
um, was sort of marketing led and supported by the org? Did it sort of integrate a lot of different teams? Like how did you practically speaking make that happen? I mean, I think it, it, it was an organization wide initiative. Um, and I think that, you know, it, I give a tremendous amount of credit, for example, to our, our editorial colleagues, um, you know, where we have some editors who are brilliant creative thinkers, but, you know, they're just historically not comfortable or many of them with, you know, dealing with, you know, the, you know, relational databases and things of that sort. And so the, the attitude that we went into was, that let's just make it so that the interface, so that the ability to get data is so much easier. And then what we discovered was people who you would never have imagined were, were going to be data wonks became our, some of our biggest consumers. Some of our you know, most wild, visionary, creative types all of a sudden were coming to, you know, to meetings to say, well, I saw this through Hans, which is um, our... Um, uh, our our audit, our AI tool that lets our editors extract um, uh, information in in real time, and they were all of a sudden they were just making decisions based upon data that they were just pulling themselves because we made it easy. Um, and I think the other thing that was also really in part of the democratization effort is that we just felt that data deserved to be free within the organization. So everything that we do is available to everybody. So everything that, that happens on Harper's Bazaar is available to the team at L, where historically oh, so they might have hundred percent. Wow. Um, so cross brands and cross disciplines. So, you know, our our advertising and marketing team see everything that's going on within our uh, you know, our our CMS and our content uh, content marketing platform and vice versa. We want our our editors to hear about what it is that is really being successful within our sales and marketing teams so that it's it's a valuable input. I mean, our editors are always, the decisions they make are based upon what is best for the reader and mm -hmm. that will always be the case. But knowing also what is supporting the enterprise from a, an advertising perspective is really important input that we want them to have and that they've been you know, really anxious to better understand. And, and so, I mean, that ties into something else which is true about your organization, which is your, you have a thriving branded content practice that is growing. And I mean, I know we see that ourselves, is that, is the sort of openness across um, sort of marketing and advertising and editorial, is that one of the things that you attribute for why it's working so well? Like, because I know that in, in a lot of organisations we see there's just friction, right? Like there's yeah. this sense of branded content doesn't belong in edit and other sorts of stuff. Like how did you, how did you sort of make that, uh, make that leap as an organisation? Sure. You know, I think one of the things that we, we, felt, first of all, was that our, the, the same standards that we as an organization um, uphold for ourselves in needed to be consistent. So if something was going to be produced on a branded content basis, it needed to be as good as something that we would do on an editorial basis. So, you know, w as an organization, we're, I think we pride ourselves on, on a very healthy, collaborative, non-territorial um, you know, work environment. I think that's something that that Hearst, you know, going back to, you know, when Mr. Benick, you know, as our CEO for many years, that, that's just a culture that that he took great pride in building. 
and and it permeates things like our branded content practice where our people who are working with our clients on really ambitious branded content are are just you know incredibly tightly connected to our editorial teams they're really you know part and parcel they are the same um you know it's they, they it's a hive mind they all work together so that everything that we we're doing on a branded content basis is informed by the successes or or failures of what we produce on an editorial basis and vice versa um and it's been incredibly important um for for us over the last few years and how does that play? I mean, when you're talking with your marketer and advertiser partners, I mean, is that something that's important to them? Or like, how do they, how does that sort of differentiate your teams when advertisers are trying to make decisions about who to partner with? Because I know particularly now with the pandemic, so many marketers are thinking of ways to meaningfully intersect culture and to sort of be there where people are as opposed to interrupting them and trying to bring them elsewhere. And it seems like branded content is an important part, but like, how does that, how does that translate when you're working with marketers? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, I think branded content is also particularly powerful um, in, you know, in the context that we operate, which is trusted brands that people have known and um, have have relied upon for years, if not decades. Um, so that, you know, it, but it also, it creates, uh, you know, a, a greater responsibility on our part as well. So, you know, for, so, you know, when we're producing branded content, um, you know, we want to make sure that it is truly in the voice of the editorial brand um, that it's going that, that through which it's going to be distributed. Because you know, if we do something that just doesn't feel right for the brand, the reader is going to they're going to notice it instantaneously. Um, and we also have to look very carefully to say, like, what are things that are are appropriate or not appropriate you know, for our brands. Um, you know, so we take that, we take that very seriously. I can tell you, we get requests all the time um, to, you know, for example, for our health and wellness brands, which are arguably some of the most, they have the deepest sort of trust relationship, you know, a brand like Good Housekeeping with Good Housekeeping Institute, prevention, women's health, men's health. Yeah, um, particularly in this time, right? With, totally. Yeah. Um, you know, we get requests all the time from um, products um, that that ask to do branded content that we just won't do it. Um, you know, we think that particularly during the pandemic, the fact that people and I probably especially at the beginning of the pandemic, when we saw huge traffic spikes of people coming to us looking for science based expert um, insight into how people needed to um, process what was going on at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that attitude has to permeate everything we do on a branded content basis as well. So we take that, we take that very, very seriously. How, how much of your approach um, to sort of marketing your brands was informed by your previous role where you were over on the revenue side. And I know that marketing sure. and sales work very closely. Um, you know, you've sort of explained that, but I guess how did you make that transition and how much of you sort of still lives in that world of thinking about revenue and, and sort of balancing that over? Yeah, yeah. so I'm somewhat of a, an unusual um, uh, sort of path to the seat that I sit in now. 
um, so I've run sales organizations for, for years. I ran um, digital sales for the New York Times for a number of years um, and, and then had responsibilities for the integrated business. Um, and then I've been, yes, I've been running digital sales for Hearst for about you know, seven years. Um, so I think, you know, what we wanted to do was think about our marketing practice and how we work with the industry um, in a way that was really connected to what the industry needs. So, you know, when you're when you're running a sales organization, you're you're with customers, you know, multiple times a day. You're constantly hearing what what works for them, what frustrates them, um, what they want more of, what they want, what they want less of. Um, so when I was asked to, um, uh, to take on the, the CMO role overseeing both print and digital sort of marketing activities, um, I was excited about it because, you know, I, I, I know the, 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 I know the, the joys of, of what it is to run sales. I know the pain of what it is to run sales, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and I was really excited about trying to think about how we could better service the needs of our clients. Um, at a time where they really need it. And I think, you know, particularly I moved into this role and then roughly six months later, the pandemic hit. And I think, you know, surprise, it, surprise. Um, but, but I think it was actually, it, it was, in, it was liberating in some ways, but, but it also really crystallized the role that we as an organization can have with these clients. Um, and it really let us do some, some really cool things that I think that we would not have been able to do if we were all still in the offices the way, way we were before March 12th of 2020. Yeah, I think, uh, I think that touches on something that we were discussing, which is I think you said innovation by necessity creates opportunities. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about that? How did you innovate throughout the pandemic? And you're just in this new role. Um, you're still sort of getting up to speed and then the world fundamentally changes. H how did you break that down from an innovation standpoint? Sure. So, you know, one of the things that that we heard loud and clear at the beginning of the pandemic was that our customers, our agency partners, our client partners, were just were so desperate to better understand what was going on with consumers in the marketplace. Um, and because they knew that people were confused, that people were, were looking to better understand the world around them. Um, so what we decided to do was, we've always been known for doing interesting research, particularly thought leadership research, but we decided to, um, to approach it during the pandemic in ways that were were just very different for us. So you know, so we started conducting these really um, ambitious um, research projects um, with third party partners to dive into things um, that 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 our partners were really looking for. And then also um, be sort of liberated by the lack of the physical constraints of 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 face to face interaction, um, and 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 share this information much more broadly than we used to. So I'll give you a, an example. You know, beauty is one of our biggest categories. You know, we've always been very involved with beauty. Um, so we were we were thinking about some research early on in the pandemic when obviously the the horrendous activities um, related to the murder of George Floyd occurred. And we started to think about how were people in the beauty industry thinking about social justice, about racial equality, and how were those types of topics affecting people's decision-making when it comes to beauty purchases? 
So what we did was we did a, a major study in the market. It took uh, you know a couple of months to do. Um, but then what we did is we then um, uh, convened what I thought was, a, a, was such an interesting session, which was with the research partner looking at the research. Then we brought in um, our editorial experts to talk about how this is affecting, how they're covering topics relating to social justice and equality, um, and how what we're hearing about how people are thinking about things in the, from a trend perspective, like how are they supporting Black-owned business? How are they want to talk about things like skin tone and 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 re topics that are sort of central to the beauty industry, and we had hundreds and hundreds of people join us for an event. Um, they were then looking for um, you know more information after the event, and so I thought it was a really interesting example of where you know we we had data, we distilled the data to insight that we could then share with our clients and then sharing it really broadly um, to inform the whole marketplace um, and make everyone's in the industry's decision-making better, which um, I thought was a really exciting um, sort of uh, really exciting activity that we're, we're really proud of. Right. And I think it, it really sort of ties back to the theme that you were talking about earlier around trust and sort of going ahead, funding this research, which no one was paying you to do, but going, hey, we think that this is something that our partners are going to need to understand. So we're going to dive into it. Um, however, your approach to innovation didn't stop with thought leadership. You also had to innovate around content creation. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess, I mean, it's, it's, all, it's all going down. Everyone's suddenly at home. We're figuring all of that out. And your content creators have to keep, keep creating or want to keep creating, rather. What was that process like? Like, how did you, how did you collaborate and, and break that down? Well, first of all, it was terrifying. <laughs> um, you know, obviously, you know, as an organization, the the first and foremost, our number one priority was the the, the health and safety of our of our employees. So that was sort of, uh, you know, that was table stakes. Um, but what was really interesting is that with that said, our creative teams were just really anxious to to get to work um, and to service the needs of our readers in really in new and innovative ways. So, um, and I think this is another example where this whole process liberated us. So, um, you know, it's a brand like Delish, which is our, our big food brand. And it's, the, you know, it's a massive business for us. It's the biggest, um, you know, food site with purely professionally produced original content in, in the world. Um, and so what, when we, when we went into lockdown, um, you know, the Joe Saltz who's the editor was like, you know, I think people are really looking for ways that they can engage with their families around food and doing it in ways, you know, when kids are, are home full time, um, that they can sort of create meaningful engagement between a parent and, and a child. So she actually started to do um, a regular show with her son, who's, I don't know, 10 years old, give or take, um, from her kitchen. Um, and, you know, we would never have done that before the pandemic. Well, it ended up being a huge success. Then we further innovated because we started to say, well, 
you know, we know what the, the, whatever the particular product that's going to be featured this month, let's get advertisers involved in ways that are true to our, 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 um, our values, transparent to the reader, but let's an advertiser participate on this. So we started to do that. And all of a sudden it creates an entirely new business. Um, you know, we did the same thing with brands like women's health and men's health. It started to do, regular like multiple times a day programming for remote workouts with the trainers that we have access to um it, it at the end of the day it delighted the reader and it helped us strengthen that relationship between our brands um and and the reader um and helped us inject an advertiser into that relationship um and the last thing was i think what we also saw was that that readers found it to be just super authentic. Like, you know, all of a sudden the, the big photo shoots that we were doing, for example, with celebrities, yeah. where it was like, it used to be, it would be like a, you know, a Cecil B. DeMille production. It was like, you know, huge numbers of people and craft services and all the rest. And all of a sudden we started to do photo shoots with top talent. And it was a photographer at somebody's house shooting them, you know, in ways that were just super intimate. Um, and it, it worked really well. And arguably it worked even better than what we used to do. So, you know, there's, there's so much that we've learned from this experience that we're going to continue. Yeah. Well, and that, I think that touches on where I was going to go next, which is, you know, it's, it's too early, of course, we're not through this by any measure, um, but we can see, you know, we can see light ahead in a way forward. What of this that your team has learned do you think you will persist with beyond, yeah. you know, beyond the, the level of necessity where we are right now? Like what are some of the, the great finds that you think you'll, you'll continue on with? Sure. Well, I, I do think definitely that, that, um, that the intimacy that, that, that we sort of experienced when we first started to have to limit like the number of people that are, are at shoots and at, at things of that sort, it will definitely continue. And I, and I do think, um, you know, is, does it cost less to do that? Yes. But what that also lets us do is it, is it creates um, a very different dynamic that we have with talent, with um, our partners. Um, and I think it just overall creates a really healthy environment for us to, to collaborate on. And we wanna make sure that we continue that. I think the other thing, you know, a couple other things, I think that, that insight-based decision-making that, you know, when things were moving incredibly rapidly, it became obviously, you know, hugely important. Um, but I think, you know, that is a discipline that we will, we're not by any means ever going to walk away from. Um, and then I think, you know, the other thing that we just also see is that, um, you know, that, that, that time is our ultimate valuable commodity. That, you know, that the idea of walking into a customer, you know, whether it's an agency or a client and having the hour long sort of, you know, dog and pony show, you know, it went away. After the because... five and a half hour flight. And exactly. Airport, yeah. Exactly. So I think, you know, it, it, it's that I think it really distilled upon us that what people are looking for is our, our actionable ideas that they can, you know, understand very quickly, um, that, um, that, that, that just time is, is so important and that we as an organization need to, to, to continue to respect that probably in ways that we did not entirely understand before this. 
Yeah, it, that ties a lot to some other conversations we've been having in this series around how much of the process around some of this, and I think most of these conversations were in the context of film and really big commercials and big scale TV productions, like how much of that was sort of romance and ceremony as opposed to things that you actually needed to have. Um, and, you know, and I think that I, I think no one knows exactly, but I think the consensus across all the conversations is, gosh, we can get by with a lot less than we thought and we can sort of just get down to it much faster and sort of skip a lot of the ceremonial pieces that were kind of the, the window dressing, if you will. I, I, I totally agree. But I also think you can't discount um, the fact that of how smart the consumer has gotten about some of these things. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, what we saw during the pandemic was that uh, our our readers and our viewers developed an even stronger relationship with our, you know, our in-house talent. You know, some of our our editors and our the talent that that appear in our in our videos. And so for, we have a, an editor. Um, uh, on one of our food products, June, who started to do these shoots from her kitchen. Now she has a tiny, tiny little kitchen. I think she lives, I think she lives in Queens, maybe Astoria. Um, And she does these amazing videos. But what was really interesting is the fact that like, she looks like one of our readers, you know, she acts like our readers. She lives in a house with a kitchen, like yeah. our, our readers. And she's working in a space that is accessible, right? Like oftentimes Correct. you're like, gosh, my kitchen doesn't look like that, right? right. It's, you know, I can't do a waltz in my kitchen. It's not possible. You know? That is exactly. So I, so I, I think that, that, you know, that readers and viewers have figured that out now. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that, um, that that's something that I think is really valuable for, for everyone because we probably would have historically put her in some big ass kitchen with, you know, right. a marble slab the size of a king size bed that in the middle perfect. island, Those you know, <laughs> right. And now it's like we shoot in her kitchen and it's, it's amazing. And I think that's a real, that's a real treasure. Was that, I mean, was that something, you know, you're, you guys have been around, you know, you're not a new magazine brand, right? And that's part of what I'm sure builds the consumer trust. But was that harder for you um, as such an established brand to sort of break down some of these barriers and, you know, go rogue as it were and, and really sort of like, how, what was that process like? Or was it just supernatural because you were focused on your readers? You know, I think it was probably the fact that, are it was easy to do but we didn't know if it was going to be accepted by all of like the the different constituencies that we work with so whether it was you know would advertisers still value something that was shot you know in somebody's kitchen as much as if we were doing some big studio set or whatever but and i also think you know the concern was you know speaking for my colleagues on the editorial side was like well you know if you're talking to top tier talent you know, they're used to like the entourage showing up for the shoot. Like, are they going to be upset that it isn't what we, what we learned was is that like, they didn't care if anything, it was liberating. Um, You know, we still, we still work really hard. I mean, what it requires is more pre-planning and coordination beforehand. So that when, you know, you're going very often to like somebody's house to shoot, 
um, that, you know, the, the work that the stylist has done, the work that, you know, everyone else has done beforehand has to be really, really thought through. But I think people have really embraced it. Um, and yeah. I think on, on all sides. Well, and I think, you know, the, the nice point was there was a period where it was like that or nothing, right? It wasn't like you could go, okay, I'll bring in, I'll wheel in the big crew if you don't like it, right? So it's a, it was a great time to, to try things out. Um, so talking, I guess, back over your career, um, and you've got this intriguing role in maybe one of the most interesting times in memorable history. As you reflect back on your career, what have been some of the most influential decisions? Or you know what, what about the most influential decision that you think you've made that has sort of gotten you to, to where you are today? Sure. Well, you know, uh, I think that, you know, any of us in our careers are put in places where, or asked to do things that you, that you just, you question, like, am I up to this? You know, do I have the, the requisite skills to be successful? Um, you know, in this particular environment. Um, and, you know, what I found is those times when you are uncomfortable are often the times when um, there's the, the, the opportunity for growth um, that, uh, that, that's the greatest growth. So, you know, for, for example, so, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I was at the New York Times for a number of years and I was running a number of marketing and business development functions, um, organizational issues, things of that sort. Um, and then uh, 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 the boss, who I had great respect for, asked me to run sales for nytimes.com. And I'm like, what? Like, why would you possibly think that I could do that? Um, and, it, I, and it was super frightening. Um, but I think, you know, what she said was, you know, listen, the, 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 you know, you build new muscles by working muscles that you have not traditionally used. She felt that the, the experiences I, I had had leading up to that point would prepare me um, for that. And then she said, you know, you're going to it's th that's how you're going to grow as a leader, which is to push your own personal envelope into things that you're not particularly comfortable with. Um, so, you know, that, that move that I made, you know, what was it, 15 some odd years ago? I'll not talk the exact year, you don't want to date myself. Um, but I, I think that, and I think it's the same when I, when I moved into the CMO seat a couple of years ago, um, you know, I've always, you know, I've spent 15 years leading sales teams and I was asked to, to move into a, into a CMO role, which was, you know, also sort of intimidating. Um, it's a but, big move over, yeah. But, but that's where, that is where, where growth happens is when, is when you do feel, when you do question yourself, you know, do I have everything that I need to be successful in this? Um, and it just, I think it, for any of us, it, it, it creates greater motivation um, uh, to, to dive in really quickly. How do you, I know one of the things that I've heard many people grapple with is like, how do you know when it's a good challenge, right? Is it, are all challenges good challenges? Or like, how do you, how, how do you personally discern, like, gosh, this is outside of my comfort zone. I feel pretty uncomfortable, but you know what I'm going to do it versus like, whoa, there's just no way this is a bad move. How do you tell the difference between those? You know, I, first, I think it's probably different for everybody. I will tell you from, from my personal perspective, there's a couple of things. Number one is that you know, you have to take pride in what the work that you're doing is all about. So, you know, I've worked in publishing for media brands for over 30 years now, 
And personally, it's always been incredibly rewarding to be supporting the journalistic work that makes a difference in millions of people's lives. And whether that's for a brand like Women's Health or Cosmopolitan or Esquire, I mean, these, you know, they, they help shape people's understanding of the world, it, that these brands help people better understand what's going on, some of which might be sort of entertaining versus health and wellness, but still they have, they play a really important role in people's lives. So that's always been really important to me. Um, so I think that it, is something going to be rewarding to you on a, on a visceral level. It's, I always joke, you know, I get approached by ad tech companies and things of that sort over the years. I've just never been interested because I really so enjoy um, supporting the journalism that I think is so important for us as a, as a country. I think the other thing that's also really important is the values that an organization shares. So, you know, when, um, you know, whether it was when I was joining the New York Times or when I when I joined Hearst, you know, talking to people, um, you know, like, you know, Michael Clinton and, and David Carey and Steve Schwartz, you know, it, it was very clear what the values that they held really close. Um, and 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 that was so important to me um, in 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 why I accepted the role I mean, why I'm still here all these years later which is that um, you, you just need to make sure that the, the values of the organization, the values of the people who you'll be working with um, align with your own personal values. Have you, uh, you talked about being a, like sort of supporting journalistic uh, work for many years. Have you ever been tempted just to jump in and, and, and do the writing yourself? Like you, <laughs> you know, it's really funny. So Kate Lewis, Kate Lewis, who is our who is our chief content officer, I she always I always joke because I'm like, I I definitely consider myself a frustrated journalist. Um, you know, I've worked in journalism adjacent for yeah. for my entire career, but they've never actually let me touch the pretty pictures or words. <laughs> um, but you know, but I, I I do think that one of the things that has helped me be successful throughout my career is understanding that. Um, uh, the, the the and and being able to to work really effectively with our editors that that ultimately the way I look at things from an advertising and marketing perspective is if it is right for the consumer if it's right for the reader or the viewer um, uh, that ultimately that's what's going to re, is going to re, result in something being successful that if you think about that the 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 reader first. Um, and put everything through the prism to say, is this something that is going to speak to a need for the reader, is going to um, deliver upon something that, that, that they will value, that's what's going to work for the advertiser. So ultimately, I consider myself to be part of the journalistic enterprise every day. Um, I just do it in my own unique way. And you haven't dived in to actually uh, ship the content quite yet. But, no, um, and I don't think I'm that you. smart or talented to do it. So that's probably <laughs> why. That's amazing. Um, so when you um, think about, uh, you know, continuing on this reflection on your career, what is the one thing that you now know that you really wish you would have known at the start or early in your career? Well, you know, it, it's... Remember, you know, so I started my career, um, uh, uh, you know, um, before there was an internet, 
Um, so, you know, a lot has changed. But, I, you know, I, I do think the thing that I always tell people who are early in their career is, is to think about, you know, not, not your next job that you might be considering, but what is the trajectory that that job is going to put you on after that, or maybe even after that. So think about um, not where you're going to get, oh, well, this might be, you know, I might make 15% more money if I go to this role. You really need to think about two or three steps beyond that to say, what is it that is my, the long-term goals um, that, and I, I got really good advice um, very early on in my career by um, the, the, my, my very first boss, um, a guy named John Laughlin, who said, um, who encouraged me to, to take on a sales role um, very early on in my career. And he said, you know, you might not want to do that for, for your entire career, but you want to get the experience now so that 20 years from now, you can reflect on what you learned as a salesperson um, and be better at whatever it is that you want to do. So I, I think that the thing that, that is, is thinking about one's career as sort of a portfolio of experiences, not just about one job, but about this job, this job, and this job to build a, a, a diversity of, of skills and muscles, if you will, um, is is just so important, particularly now when the marketplace changes so often. Um, you need to be able to, to adapt really quickly and having a diversity of experiences is the best way to do that. Yeah, I love that, um, that phrasing around a portfolio because it's almost like something that you amass and something that um, you know, becomes a, like becomes more valuable over time grouped. I think so much of the pressure that people feel early on in their career is like making the right decision, right? Like this is the be all and end all. Is this the, is this the job that is going to make my career and make me happy? And it's, it's great to have that long range perspective. And, and I think the other thing is that that perspective is not, um, you know, is, is available to people, even if they elect to stay in the same organization. So people often think it's like, well, I need to quit, you know, in order to advance my career and go to the next company, the next company. Um, I think that, that one thing I always also really encourage people early in their career to do is, is just, is really take advantage of the networking within any given organization. You know, obviously do what you need to do to be successful in, in your, in your, the role that you're in today, but invite people to, to have coffee. Well, when we're able to have coffee again, although, you know, you could do it over zoom, but, but network within the organization, learn what people are doing um, uh, in their unique role so that you can learn from it. Because the, the, the best way to, to build that portfolio of skills is to do it in an organization that knows you and you know them so that you can go into roles that are rewarding for both, um, for both the organization and, and you, the employee. Um, and, and that's the, the best way to build up a, um, a real diversity of skills. Yeah, and it's, it's terrific advice because I think so many people worry that they just need to stay under their manager. They shouldn't meet with other people. They don't want that to be perceived. And I think this is great advice, particularly as everyone's working from home and you can't just bump into someone at the coffee machine. It's like, how do you actually navigate, become more visible, learn more about what other people are doing? Absolutely. Um, so a couple of just quick rapid fire. What is the role of social media for Hearst magazines? Well, it's, it is central to what we do. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's, 
it's so important to us because it's very often the way that people interact with our brands, um, uh, you know, in, in either at the beginning of their experience or, um, you know, throughout the experience. So, you know, a brand like Cosmopolitan, you know, we have the, the, the footprint that that brand has across all of the different social media platforms is just so remarkable. Um, and but but I think what's also exciting is that it's such an opportunity for innovation and for experimentation. You know, I mean, I was you know working on the brand when we first got involved with Snapchat, and the idea was that it was sort of a uniquely appropriate brand for that environment, and it has been. It's been a huge success there. But now we're looking at the next things. We're looking at obviously we're deep into TikTok. We're deep oh, into yeah. into you know live streaming and commerce. My 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 colleague. Nancy Berger, who um, who runs that brand, has been so so successful in pushing that brand um, with her with her editorial partners in ways that like we never would have imagined. So I think that that it's so important that we look at social media as a as a as a as a re resource for continuous experimentation and innovation. And by the way, some of which will fail. And that's perfectly okay, um, but we just need to continue to push the envelope and try new things on a regular basis. Yeah, and, and talking about failure in that way, Todd, is also so important because I think so many brands hold back until there is the best practices playbook. You know, like by the time the playbook is completely written and printed and bound, it's too late, right? <laughs> like it's, you know, you've missed a lot of, you can still get on and get value, but you've missed so much of that early energy of, you know, a platform like TikTok right now that is still largely shaping, you know, from a brand perspective. Absolutely. Um, if you were to explain your role as CMO to, you know, someone who I guess wasn't deeply in our industry, how would you define what it is that you do as the chief marketing officer? Sure. So I think, well, every organization probably defines it a little differently, but I'll tell you how, how, you know, my, I look at my role as, first of all, is just helping other people succeed um, and do the best possible job they can. How can I remove barriers um, to success for the, the, the broader organization? So, um, you know, Overall, my job is to make sure that we are positioned in the marketplace in ways that are um, are, are going to help us be most successful in building our business. Um, so how we work with advertisers, how we work with partners, um, how we're positioned, how we communicate with the market, um, uh, how we educate and inform the market, and um, and overall what what our external communication is. And then also how we best equip our sales teams with the best possible creative ideas that they can take out to the market. So that's how I work. So I work with a, 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 a corporate marketing team that, that, that works across the, the umbrella of all of our brands. But then I work really closely with our various integrated marketing teams that are brand specific. I work with our corporate communications team. I work with our data studio. So, so much of what today's successful CMO is the role is about leading through influence. It's about um, harnessing the collective energy of an organization. Some people who might work for you, but most who don't, um, all to support um, the, the, the sales enterprise in ways um, that are going to be consistent with what, what the organization is about. 
Oh, I love that. Um, and what's the next mountain to climb for you? Like, what are you excited about as you look out through the remainder of this year and, and into the future? Sure. You know, I think it's a couple things. I, number one, um, I think that the role, as we all know, with the, the changes in sort of the data landscape, the degradation of the third party cookie, things of that sort that we're all obsessed with right now. Um, I think that the role of the, the high quality content provider um, is just, there's a huge opportunity for us. You know, we, we collect billions of pieces of information a month um, on the readers that we have a direct one-to-one relationship with. So I think that how we work with our advertising partners over the next couple of years um, is just super exciting um, and is going to be, is going to be just, uh, is just really, really intriguing to me. I think the other part of it is also the, the idea of how, um, that historically there was commerce and there was advertising and they were very different things. Um, that is just utterly going away. So I think that the opportunity for us um, to work with partners in ways that um, historically we were, we, we were not capable of doing, but leveraging the ability of, of our brands to drive business results, to drive transactions, but doing that in ways that are directly connected to upper funnel um, or in mid funnel brand building and brand awareness um, approaches, I think is also just really exciting. So I think those are two of the things that I'm most excited about as we move forward. Yeah. I love that. It's, uh, I think there's so much conversation about how you used to have this divide between a brand marketer and sort of a lower funnel direct marketer and everyone's going, gosh, that's just not a realistic, you know, bifurcation of a marketer's role. So that it sounds like you're well positioned to be in the, uh, to be threading the needle around that as well. We hope so. Amazing. Well, I could talk to you forever, but I'll hold us here. Todd, thank you so much for, for joining for today's episode. It was so great to talk to you and we can't wait to, to chat again soon. Great. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. 